Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. This week we're going to have a look at lessons for today, the inflation problem of today from the experience of the 1970s and its aftermath in the 1980s and 1990s. Way back in 1981 on a holiday with my parents to Hawaii, we got into a discussion with some Americans about their new president, Ronald Reagan, and they said he had to deliver some tough economic medicine after years of policy mismanagement. At the time being youngster. I just dismissed them as typical Republicans. But as the years went by, I concluded that they maybe had a point. The 1970s were an economic mess, and this seemed to be the case whether you had right-leaning or left-leaning governments in Australia and the US and other countries, as inflation was allowed to get out of control. In fact, things were so bad that there was a wave of nostalgia for the 1950s and early 1960s when things seemed a lot better, starting with films like American Graffiti, and the TV shows Happy Days and then Laverne and Shirley, and also the rise of retro radio stations playing hits from the 50s and 60s. With inflation surging lately, what lessons can be drawn from the 1970s and its aftermath in terms of today's problems? This is important because if we don't learn the lessons of the past, we are bound to repeat them. This is particularly pertinent now, as I often hear the comment, why are we so worried about a bit of inflation? And why is the RBA inflicting so much pain? But first, let's take a quick look at what happened in the 1970s. And I mean quick because I did have a look at this last year in various notes and podcasts. From around the mid-1960s, inflation started rising, first in the US and then in Australia. It was driven by a combination of tight labour markets, more militant workers demanding higher wages, a big expansion in the size of government, disruption from the Vietnam War, uh, an early day equivalent, of course, of the war in Ukraine to some degree, easy monetary policy, social unrest and years of industry protection, reducing competition and pushing up prices. It really blew out after the OPEC oil embargo of 1973 and the second oil shock after the Iranian revolution of 1979. The surge in inflation came in waves, reaching double-digit levels as we went through the 70s and, of course, into the 1980s. It also combined with frequent recessions as policymakers tightened monetary policy in response to high inflation, but were then too quick to ease when growth slumped, only to see inflation take off again, driving more tightening and another economic downturn. That was often referred to as stop-go monetary policy. The end result was a decade of high inflation, high unemployment, and slow economic growth from which it took a long time to recover. For investors, it was bad, as high inflation meant high interest rates, high economic volatility, and uncertainty and reduced earnings quality, all of which demanded higher risk premiums to invest in things like shares hence lower price-to-earnings multiples. The 1970s were one of the few decades to see poor real returns from both shares and bonds at the same time. So what broke it? The malaise ultimately ended after voters turned to economically rationalist political leaders like Thatcher, Reagan and Hawke and Keating in Australia. The policy response involved a combination of tight monetary policy, which drove severe recessions, ultimately culminating in inflation targeting as we know it today, supply-side reforms like deregulation of labour and product markets, privatisation and competition laws to make it easier for the economy to boost supply, to meet demand. This was aided by globalisation. And then in the late 1990s, the tech boom, which boosted the supply of low-cost goods and services. In Australia, of course, the Accord way back in 1983 helped break the wage price spiral at the time. This all broke the back of inflation with some 
in the 2000s calling it dead. So what can we learn from the blaze of the 1970s and its aftermath, which of course ran into the early 1990s recession in Australia? I reckon there's a bunch of key lessons for the inflation problems of today. The first thing is what won't work? Raising wages to keep up with inflation won't work. It just perpetuates high inflation, making it even harder to get back down. Price controls. A lot of people think, well, why doesn't government jump in and put price controls on? Well, the problem is we tried that in the early 1970s in the US. All it did was restrict supply, made the problem even worse. And as soon as those price controls were removed to try and boost supply, the problem was worse than ever in terms of inflation. Well, I guess we could replace central bank governance. Well, the problem with doing this midway through the inflation problem is that it just reduced confidence in central banks and would do exactly the same thing this time around and could even result in higher interest rates as investors lose confidence demanding a higher risk premium. The US saw something like this in the 1970s when it replaced William Martin, who had learnt from his experience letting inflation get out of control through the late 1960s. He was replaced by President Nixon with Arthur Burns, which of course then just perpetuated the high inflation problem because Arthur Burns hadn't learned the lessons that William Martin had. You could raise the RBA's inflation target. Let's say let's give up, just lock in high inflation. That of course involves costs for the economy, which we'll come on to in a moment. But if you just raise it a little bit, many would just see it as changing the goalposts and then there'd be even less confidence in the Reserve Bank and their commitment to getting inflation down. One option is to shift responsibility for inflation control back to government. This sounds fine in theory, but gov as governments have more levers to pull. For example, the government could impose a 1% temporary income tax surcharge to cool demand in the economy, which would spread the load more fairly than just picking on homeowners, as some would say is the case with the current approach. Raising interest rates obviously puts a lot of pressure on those with mortgages, but lots of people are less affected. But unfortunately, politicians have shown an inability to inflict pain or inflict the necessary pain to slow inflation for the simple reason there's no votes in it. So switching focus back to governments simply won't work. It was the way things were done in Australia in the 1970s and its failure led to the widespread adoption of central bank independence focused on meeting an inflation target. So that's the first lesson, bunch of things that won't work and are probably not the way to go this time around. Secondly, containing inflation expectations is key. Once inflation takes hold, it gets harder to squeeze out. This relates to what is often referred to as inflation psychology or inflation expectations. After a period when inflation has been high for a while, consumers and businesses expect it to stay high and so behave in a way via wage demands, price setting, and acceptance of price rises that effectually perpetuate it. A wage price spiral is a classic example of this, where prices go up a lot, workers demand wage rises in, in compensation, which boosts costs and results in another round of sharp price rises. And of course, workers and businesses just chase their tail. This is a classic example of the fallacy of competition. While it is rational for an individual to demand a wage rise to match inflation, if all workers do that, it just results in a further surge in inflation. The third lesson is that whether it's a supply or a demand shock, central banks have to respond. While the initial impetus to a surge in inflation may be constrained supply, if it occurs when demand is strong or goes on for too long, central banks still have to respond to cool demand and signal that they are serious about containing inflation. Otherwise, inflation expectations will rise and the initial shock will show up in a perpetuation of high inflation. Central banks' failure to respond adequately after the 1973 oil price shock contributed to inflation getting entrenched in the 1970s. The fourth lesson is that we really need to avoid stop-go monetary policy. There is a danger in easing monetary policy too early in a downturn if inflation expectations have not been tamed. This occurred in the 1970s with inflation slowing and central banks easing as growth slowed 
but inflation seen rising even higher. This underpins talk that central banks will keep rates higher for longer. The fifth lesson is that entrenched high inflation will mean entrenched higher interest rates. The logic behind this is quite simple. It's because investors will demand compensation for the fall in the value of their savings by demanding higher interest rates if it goes on for too long. So interest rates rose through the 1970s into the 1980s, and this of course will weigh on the valuation of shares and property. 10-year bond yields of around 3.5 to 4%, which is sort of where they are in Australia and the US at present, are fine if investors expect inflation will fall back to say 2 to 3%, but if they believe inflation will stay high at 6 to 8%, then they are too low. Those yields will move up and that will affect the cost of money right through the economy and have a flow on, of course, to mortgage rates. Entrenched high inflation, and this is the sixth Lesson, trenched high inflation is bad for the economy because it distorts economic decisions. Everyone gets focused on trying to protect themselves from high inflation rather than worthwhile investment in the economy. And that of course cuts economic growth, adds to economic uncertainty, hampers investment, and it also boosts inequality. It's much harder for low-income earners, for poorer people to protect themselves against the malaise of high inflation than it is for high-income and wealthier people. The seventh lesson is that once entrenched, High inflation risk requiring a deep recession to remove it. This was seen in the deep recessions of the early 1980s and early 1990s in Australia, which saw double digit unemployment. This was because by the late 1970s, inflation expectations in the US as measured by the University of Michigan's consumer survey we were only around 10%, following years of very high inflation, making it harder to get inflation back down. In other words, it had become entrenched in inflation expectations. We don't have University of Michigan data for Australia going all that way back in terms of inflation expectations, but the likelihood is that Australia was very similar at the time. Good news is that that's not the case at present. Uh, inflation expectations for the long term are much lower. The eighth lesson is that governments should focus on the supply side. The practical inability of governments to adjust fiscal policy much to control inflation means the best they can do in the short term is not add to the problem. This, of course, means constraining budget deficits and limiting new spending. Longer term, there is a lot that governments can do to help control inflation, and it's all about supply side reforms to make the economy more work more smoothly. For example, deregulate, cut back government, or the size of government and competition reforms. Unfortunately, the policy appetite for such reforms today is low because the inflation problem is relatively new. Of course, the appetite for such reforms was very high in the early 1980s, as people could see through the 1970s that the policy response through the 1970s didn't work, so supply-side reforms were embraced. The ninth and final point is that monetary policy operates with a lag. The early 1990s recession showed monetary policy does work with a lag. This seems contradictory to the fourth point noted earlier, but highlights the risk of over-tightening. The lags arise as it takes time for rate hikes to be passed on to borrowers, that to slow spending down and then for slower demand to lead to less employment and the flow on of all of this back to households and for all of this to cool inflation. This can take 12 months or more. So just looking at inflation and jobs data can give a misleading impression as they are lagging indicators. In the late 1980s, the RBA kept hiking and unemployment kept falling but by early 1990, it was clear it had gone too far and we had that very deep recession Australia had in the early 1990s. So what does it all mean for today? The good news is that this is not 1980 and more like the early 1970s. We are, in other words, we're early in the process. Inflation expectations are still low. There is no evidence of a wage price spiral, particularly in Australia. Supply bottlenecks, freight costs, and surging money supply, which led to inflation, are now reversing, and high household debt ratios compared to the 1970s should make monetary policy more potent in terms of slowing things down without going to exorbitant interest rates. But these lessons explain why central banks 
the lessons from the 1970s, that is. They explain why central banks are now so fearful of letting inflation get out of control and also the difficult balancing act facing them. As Reserve Bank Governor Lowe has said, they are managing, this is central banks that is, are managing two risks, not doing enough, resulting in high inflation persisting and proving costly in terms of reducing it and that we move too fast or too far and trigger recession. Balancing these two risks is seen as resulting in a narrow path to lower inflation and the economy continuing to grow. But what is too much and too little tightening is a judgment call. The Reserve Bank's view has become more hawkish after the December quarter CPI. It is signalling at least two more rate hikes and money markets and the consensus of economists have moved to reflect this with the consensus rate expectations rising above 4%. Our view is that the RBA risks doing too much given the high vulnerability of a significant minority of indebted Australian households and that the impact of past rate hikes is just being masked by normal lags accentuated by revenge spending associated with reopening and that that impact, that masking impact will soon pass. Signs of slower consumer spending and jobs growth along with there still being no evidence of a wages break in Australia are consistent with this. As such, it risks the Reserve Bank, that is, risks a rerun of the late 1980s, early 1990s experience where Australia was inadvertently knocked into a deep recession as the lagged impact of rate hikes took time to show up. So while we believe rates are close to the top, the RBA's tough guidance means that the risks are skewed to the upside. Further evidence of slowing consumer and jobs data are necessary to cause the RBA to rethink, so upcoming retail sales and jobs data are critical in all of this. I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform. That way you'll never miss an episode.